Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadbourne, and with me, as always, is Thomas Brooks. Hello, hello. And joining us today to kind of continue our conversation on conspiracy theories and and research in conspiracy theories, conspiracy theorists, uh, are Dr. Uh, Joseph Uzinski and Dr. Adam Enders. Hello, thanks for having us. Thank you for coming. So we've been kind of moving forward and, and wanting to kind of branch out beyond psychological research in, in conspiracy theories and really learning that there's a lot of overlap in the stuff that we look at and kind of how we approach um, both, both individuals who, who believe in conspiracy theories or kind of fall down these rabbit holes. Um, and, and so it's, it's much appreciative for you to join us and kind of share your perspective and your research, um, you know, and, and kind of looking at these, these particular topics. Um, I guess before we get started, because I'm terrible at introductions, uh, we <laughs> like to have um, our guests kind of introduce themselves uh, as well to kind of give us some of your background. I can go and pull bios, but I'm always going to miss something. And, and so to kind of share sort of who you are and, and, and a little bit on what got you kind of interested into this field of research. Uh, well, uh, my name is Joe Uzinski. I'm a professor at University of Miami, as you mentioned, and I got interested in the topic about 12 years ago. And it'd be nice if I had a more romantic story, but uh, a colleague knocked on my door and said, hey, what about conspiracy theories? And I said, no. I said, that's the dumbest topic I've ever heard of. I have no interest in that. Nobody cares about it. And what a waste of time. And he twisted my arm for two weeks and I finally said, sure. And now it's become <laughs> my career at this point. Um, so I, I've been working on it for, for a while and it's become a rather fruitful endeavor, um, both academically and career-wise. Um, but it's just by accident, it happened to become a major topic um, in our world, uh, particularly after 2015. Uh, I'm Adam Enders. I'm an assistant professor of political science at the University of Louisville. Um, and I also study uh, the political psychology of conspiracy belief. Um, I guess I got into this around 2013, 2014, after I had already written half of a totally different dissertation. Uh, but I started to pay attention to Alex Jones and, um, and his, his platform was really sort of monetizing super aggressively, uh, starting around that time. And, uh, Reddit was sort of becoming a thing around then. Um, so I'm seeing this stuff happen and thinking there has to be something to this. So, uh, I scrapped my dissertation against my advisor's wishes. Uh, who also thought there's nothing to this, nobody studies this, uh, you know, there's no, there's, no, there's nothing there. Um, and uh, yeah, like Joe, it ended up sort of, uh, it ended up sort of working out. I think my first question, because y'all are both political scientists, um, what is kind of the epistemology of political science and how does that brush up against psychology? Can you give me an, what are your priorities within this field that say, a psychologist may be looking either too narrowly or too broadly. How do y'all focus in and conceptualize conspiracy theories within your field? I think the biggest difference between us and the psychologists, um, and, and I don't think there are huge differences and we're all sort of doing similar things in similar ways, but the big difference for us is that we don't 
think of um, psychological factors as driving conspiracy theories on their own, that there have to be other ingredients. And because we're political scientists, the most obvious ingredient for us is the politics. So no doubt conspiracy theory believers have different psychological characteristics than the ones who are non-believers. Um, but often the psychological characteristic doesn't get them there on its own. It has to be activated. And oftentimes it's activated by a political actor, um, by somebody in the media. So I, I, you know, whereas a psychologist might say something like, well, anxiety drives conspiracy beliefs. We would say, well, how did they find that conspiracy theory? Who shared it with them? What are the cues they're getting about it? Um, what connects the anxiety to this particular belief? Because at the end of the day, there's no reason why being anxious or having any other psychological characteristic would make you believe any particular thing. But there has, has to be something within the social environment that uses that anxiety to drive them towards some sort of conspiracy mindset or to a particular theory, I guess, I guess it would be. Sure. So, you, you, you know, for example, if you say I'm, I'm psychologically motivated to find an answer to something, why would that answer be a conspiracy theory and not something else, right? There's got to be something that gets you there. So you could say somebody became anxious because they're concerned about the pandemic or any other thing going on in the world. So they wanted to soothe their own psyche with a with an answer to it or an explanation, um, something to, to supposedly help them sleep better at night. Why is it a conspiracy? Why not? God did it. Angels did it. Magic did it. Um, some guy down the street did it. You know. So what's what's the connective tissue there? And for us, it's often um, something in politics or in or in the media that sort of draws that connection for those people and gives them the answer that they, they might be looking for. Yeah, I would, uh, I, I completely agree with everything that Joe just said, that these sort of external pressures, especially in the form of sort of elite cues and, and how um, elite discourse sort of um, shapes public opinion is, is super important. And uh, the only thing that I would add too is that, um, you know, a sort of subfield of political science is, is you know, sort of public opinion and political behavior. And so you have people that they just study beliefs, right? Uh, the, the contours of those beliefs, uh, the stability and change in those beliefs, where they come from. And, um, you know, political scientists have historically sort of focused on um, issue attitudes and can, you know, evaluations of political candidates and stuff like this. But a lot of structurally we know about uh, what we know about beliefs and where they come from and all those other things I just described is actually really useful in understanding conspiracy beliefs, which are a lot more like, you know, any other thing that we pull on than they are sort of completely magical and different, even though they seem very weird. So that sort of helps ground us in a way that I think maybe some social psychologists aren't quite grounded because they don't really interact with that literature quite the way that that we do. I mean, if you think about why scholars get into studying beliefs and conspiracy theories and beliefs and misinformation they come at it from this normative view where these beliefs are wrong or dangerous so they must be somehow different than all other beliefs therefore there must be a different explanation for them compared to all other beliefs 
but at the end of the day, the truth underlying any particular claim doesn't really matter. The same mechanics of belief are still at play. You know, so take something like climate change, for example. People say, oh, my God, what's wrong with these people who are climate change deniers? Well, they're getting to, to their beliefs the same way climate change believers are getting to their beliefs. You know, so there's some view that, oh, if you believe in climate change, you believe the science. So you must have sat down and read the Journal of Climatology and gone through the UN report and looked at the data. And no, of course that didn't happen. These people who believe in it are listening to the media and their trusted uh, political leaders and, who, you know, whoever they trust in their social environment. But that's the exact same thing that climate change deniers are doing, too. It's just in this case, the people they're listening to happen to be wrong. Right. But all the mechanics of the belief formation are exactly the same. So instead of treating these beliefs as, you know, something entirely crazy that must have a completely different explanation. I, I you know, I, I, I think what we've been trying to do for the last few years is to conceptualize them as any other belief that we might have. And, and, and I think another part of the problem becomes, becomes this, is that once you say, well, we're going to study conspiracy theories, you've just created a little box of ideas that you're going to look at. Right, and you're separating that out from every other belief and idea and thinking of it as separate, but if you just conceptualize it as something people could believe in just like anything else, then you'll realize it's just like anything else. Could you walk us through the mechanics of belief because the reason why I invited y'all was your article do conspiracy beliefs form a belief system, so what is this belief system and how do we. Um, I guess, conceptualize conspiracy theories in a way that aligns with this spectrum of belief and not so much this like categorical, like here are the wrong things and here are the right things. Well, um, I guess the best way to, to understand it is to, is to draw an analogy maybe to political belief systems. So again, <laughs> here's the, the political scientists sort of creeping in. Um, so think about liberal conservative ideology. Well, we can think about people as identifying as liberals or conservatives, but something that we know from a literature that traces back to at least the mid 1950s is that people don't really possess on average, particularly constrained belief systems. So yes, uh, they might identify as a liberal or a conservative, but then when we actually look at their attitudes about particular political issues, we find that they're a mixed bag. So we couldn't, you know, is there going to be some predictive power of that self-identification um, in, in predicting uh, any, you know, an, an answer to a particular survey question about a particular attitude? Probably some but it's not gonna be anywhere near a one-to-one -one relationship, right? And even discounting things like measurement error and survey error and all of that. Uh, it's because it's just not there. The structure is just not there. So uh, the question is, you know, can, can we sort of translate this, this conception of a belief system as being um, this organized set of beliefs where you could take one belief and predict another belief with it with a fairly high degree of accuracy and we see structure in these beliefs where um, you have clusters of beliefs that are sort of related to particular topics in, in sort of predictable, decipherable ways. 
Um, usually it entails lower dimensional kind of structure to those beliefs. Um, you know, a few sources of variability, not, you know, not a ton. Um, does that translate to conspiracy theories? Well, we know that there is this sort of predisposition to, to believe in conspiracy theories uh, or not so much. And, you know, again, by way of analogy, that kind of has to do uh, in our minds with, you know, liberal conservative self-identification. But there's still this question of organization. And I think it's a really important question because you know, we tell ourselves all of these stories about, again, you know, how conspiracy theories are different and um, you know, people sort of just get randomly exposed to these things online and then they, they come away believing them and they slip down the rabbit hole and whatever. Well, a lot of those narratives sort of suggest that this is just a random nothing, right? Uh, some people believe this one or that one because their crazy uncles shared it on Facebook or you know, they stumbled onto this other video uh, on some other platform. And if that was true, then these beliefs probably aren't very coherently organized, which I think sort of uh, logically leads us to the question of what are we even doing here, right? I mean, why, why are we studying these things if there's sort of no there there, right? So our, our goal was to say, look, um, do these different conspiracy beliefs actually sort of co-vary in predictable ways? Are there groups of them that seem to go together? Uh, with each other and maybe not others? Um, and, and, you know, are there particular uh, characteristics, um, other predispositions, values that sort of seem to systematically relate to some of these or some dimensions uh, of this belief system and, and, and less so with others? These were questions that basically nobody had been grappling with in the literature other than having noticed that there tend to be positive correlations between beliefs and specific conspiracy theories. So we wanted to dive a little bit deeper. So walk us through the process of this research then. So how did you, uh, in your article, you list your, the conspiracy theories that y'all are working with, the 20 of them, which I thought were very interesting, particularly the ones that uh, participants seem to agree mostly with. Um, how were those selected and what is the process of determining whether or not that these clusterings or these correlations do in fact justify a belief system and not just, uh, I guess, random association? I'll take the first half of the question. Um, when we run surveys, we will generally put on a bunch of conspiracy theories that we have some interest in for one reason or another. And we try to get a, a, a broad range um, ones that we think will appeal to different groups of people, uh, perhaps for different reasons. Uh, one thing to understand is that the bucket that we call conspiracy theory has an infinite number of ideas in it. People are coming up with new conspiracy theories all the time. So it's not like there's six conspiracy theories or 10 or 20. There's always new ones and there's seemingly infinite variations of each of those. So there's no way to poll on them all. There is no representative set necessarily um, that we could generalize from. So we just do the best we can and we ask about a bunch that seems somewhat relevant to any given time or relevant to whatever sort of research we wanna do, which is sort of interesting in and of itself because there's a lot of studies that come out that say, you know, conspiracy theories are predicted by this or that or the other thing. Well. What they really need to say is, 
this particular conspiracy theory or this particular set of conspiracy theories are predicted by this, that, and the other thing. Because what we will find is that each conspiracy theory attracts a different set of people, sometimes for very different reasons. So there is rarely going to be one factor, one set of factors that's going to explain everything across all conspiracy theories all the time. Um, I mean, perhaps an attraction to conspiracy theories in general will will do some of that, but um, you know, you're often going to find that it's different people um, are just going to buy into different things. So it's so it's often tough to generalize. Yeah, then, uh, in terms of uh, how we went about doing this, uh, we basically took these twenty uh, beliefs and specific conspiracy theories. Uh, that are from a, a pretty a large sample nationally representative poll. Um, and the, the sort of central result uh, was uh, from a survey that was fielded in March of 2020. And we, uh, you know, the, the obvious sort of route to go when you're trying to decipher uh, dimensionality and structure is to use these various dimensional analysis techniques. People think of things like uh, principal components analysis or factor analysis, both of which are perfectly adequate. Factor analysis actually ends up producing a result very similar to the one that we produce. Uh, but we use multidimensional scaling because it draws a nice picture. Um, and, uh, you know, that's sort of uh, one of the primary benefits. Um, and uh, what we find is that, you know, uh, these 20 different conspiracy beliefs uh, can actually be sort of accounted for uh, and structured in this nice little two-dimensional depiction uh, with you know, a really high degree of accuracy. And we also use cluster analysis um, using the configuration distances from the multidimensional scaling analysis to show that you know, there are groups uh, within that, that two-dimensional structure. And then um, the, the sort of final bit that's uh, really important. So up to there, what do we know? We know that there is organization. We know it's low-dimensional organization. We know that uh, these things sort of vary in predictable ways and that there are groups of conspiracy theories that um, clearly have very similar characteristics, uh, such as those that sort of target Republicans, those that target Democrats, those that have to do with science and medicine, those that have to do with small groups. So those three characteristics are all markers of uh, a well-organized belief system if we go back to sort of foundational literatures on what, what, a, what it means. And so the, the sort of um, last important bit and sort of uh, determining the structure is thinking about, well, what could these organizing sort of dimensions be? And so what we do is we use some external uh, variables that have uh, that others have suggested have something to do with uh, particular conspiracy theories, not all of the ones that we looked at, but at least some. And we, we try to essentially fit these external things into our little two-dimensional map. And what we find is that uh, one of these dimensions has to do with sort of left-right political orientations, so ideological self-identifications, liberal conservative, uh, the other uh, partisan self-identification, Democrat-Republican. 
And then this other host of um, more sort of psychological constructs and um, a couple of other attitudes. So we use dark triad personality traits, narcissism, Machiavellianism, uh, psychopathy, um, support for political violence. Uh, and if I'm recalling correctly, the, the uh, predisposition to share false information online. Those traits uh, and characteristics uh, define the other dimension. And without constraining those dimensions to be orthogonal to each other or uncorrelated, we find that they are. So this sort of political dimension that underwrites lots of conspiracy beliefs and indeed conspiracy belief systems is actually completely sort of unrelated to a lot of these other uh, sort of nasty or undesirable um, psychological traits which is really important uh, in, uh, for the way that we make inferences about you know, the potential problems associated with conspiracy beliefs. The political stuff is really kind of unrelated to uh, some of the, the um, you know, less productive or, or disconcerting psychological traits um, like Joe was mentioned before. I think there's been a lot of work in the last uh, 12 years trying to figure out why do people believe conspiracy theories and who, who's gonna believe which ones. Um, and I think what our paper does is help us understand um, what are the factors that would drive certain people to buy into certain conspiracy theories. I, well, one way to think about some of our findings is this. If I invited you to a picnic and you show up and I say, hey, I want you to sit here next to my friend John. He's a JFK conspiracy theorist. Would you sit down and have a conversation with John? Probably. That would be entertaining. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, so you have a good time at my barbecue and then you come back next week. I invite you again. I say, I want you to come to my next barbecue. You show up and I sit you next to Todd. And I say, here, have a conversation with Todd. Um, he's a Holocaust denier. What do you do? Feel more conflicted. <laughs> Probably leave, yeah. right? Like I'm not going to hang out with some Holocaust denier at a barbecue. So, so both of those ideas are conspiracy theories, right? The idea that the Holocaust was faked, or the idea that Kennedy was, you know, was assassinated by the CIA, or something like that. But one feels very different than the other, and there's a certain social stigma attached to one that the other doesn't have, right? That's meaningful. Right. And what it tells us right off the bat is that there's there's something cultural and social about different conspiracy theories that makes them different from each other. I, I can't give you the clear dividing line on what makes some sort of um, more distasteful than others. I don't know exactly what that ingredient is, but I can say that society certainly does believe in general that some are are more um, unacceptable than others, even beyond whether people believe it or not. So you could think of ideas like uh, no one died at Sandy Hook or the Holocaust was faked as being very different than something like, oh, JFK was killed by an inside job or something. And the fact that you could tell that just by me saying it says that there's a cultural influence here. What our results show is that, you know, those certain ideas feel antisocial because they're adopted by antisocial people, right? And those, those things are sort of going together. 
right? So if you have an uncle that says, oh, JFK or something like that, or I think GMO is a, you know, some sort of corporate plot. Those are different than the, the than the other ones I just mentioned, and that they attract a different set of people. And oftentimes, what we wind up doing is confusing the idea um, for the traits of the people who hold the idea. You say, why are all these Sandy Hook deniers acting crazy? And the assumption is that the Sandy Hook conspiracy theory drove them to act in crazy, deleterious, obnoxious ways. Well, maybe it's just because those ideas are only being held by people who are already antisocial and obnoxious and willing to act that way. Um, so it's not so much the theory driving the action, it's the fact that people are already willing to take antisocial action, adopt antisocial ideas. So in that sense, the antisocial conspiracy theories are sort of a marker of who they are underneath to begin with. This is a pretty strong theme with some of the other uh, discussions that we've had and interviews that we've done on this is that there's there are some of these kind of underlying aspects and that they do tie into kind of what uh, what the person believes. So if we take something like um, a, a parent who's a member of the anti-vax movement, a lot of that is in part driven by kind of certain like anxieties that they have concerning the safety of their kids. And then the media that they're consuming and, you know, the, the public figures that, that they're being exposed to much, much like, like you're kind of tying into with, with some of these that are kind of leading them into saying like, I've already got this underlying fear. Now I'm not going to have my kid get vaccinated because I'm worried about you know, they're, they're going to have some, some side effect and that it's not the, the belief is, is kind of, you know, tied to in part that, that, that underlying trait. And so in this case, if we're talking about, let's say the JFK assassination, it's, it's something that you could have just like, like you said, your uncle go into, but you know, that, that, that it's something that we can go, oh, okay, well, we'll, we, we have historical examples and maybe the government doing some of the stuff or, you know, these, these kind of political actors being involved in some of these un underlying things. But there's a huge difference as, as well when we get into something like genocide. Um, and that that there's there's something about that that person that that maybe drives them to that. And that's really, really fascinating. That kind of I guess backs up when we extend it to other movements and and other other conspiracy theories as well. Like you said at the beginning, the anxiety doesn't cause you know, someone to suddenly become um, that, but it can definitely, when tied to the environment, when tied to the people that they're being exposed to, um, be tied to that. You know, and this is really um, sort of gets back to the, the sort of public opinion kind of perspective, right? Like we would never ask somebody their attitude about the uh, new Texas abortion law, and then based on their answer, say you're a Democrat or a Republican. Like it just doesn't, that's not how partisanship works for us, right? It, partisanship comes first, it does come first, right? And we even see that it's transmitted from parent to child, right? Um, and sort of like classical socialization studies. But we always, uh, we very frequently say, well, if you believe this conspiracy theory, you're a conspiracy theorist. And we sort of leave it there. Well, maybe, right? But that's really just sort of a labeling exercise. That's not really getting at um, you know, the, the sort of psychology of belief and the development of beliefs, right, um, in, in the way that I was sort of describing before. And so ours is sort of an effort to take that a little bit more seriously and say, 
well, look, let's treat these beliefs as sort of, you know, markers for the other things that we're actually interested in and not sort of conceptualize beliefs as causing actions, which is sort of ridiculous with any other thing in sort of public opinion. We would never, we would never think of it that way. So we're sort of doing more of the same, albeit, you know, in, in a different area where people are, are just sort of thinking about things differently. So with, you know, doing research on conspiracy theories and charting out this new approach, what kind of tensions or uh, pushback or controversy has happened within the research spaces, maybe not because of this article in particular, but just addressing this new framework uh, within political science. And I guess also largely among the different disciplines that interact with the topic of conspiracy theories. I know this particular article, um, y'all are the political scientists on it, but there's multitudes of people from different disciplines who worked on this. So where does this sit within that larger disciplinary conversation about conspiracy theories and what kind of tensions have y'all noticed um, as a result? I haven't noticed any tensions. I mean, our paper is, you know, just came out a few months ago. I think it's the most viewed paper on the journal's website right now. Um, I don't think there's any reason for anyone in any discipline to get upset at it. Um, and it seems to straddle the line between social psychology and political science very well. And I don't think we're saying anything particularly new in it other than sort of putting together what people were already thinking. I mean, we already knew from one strain of literature that um, these personality traits like narcissism and whatnot um, are associated with some conspiracy beliefs. And we already knew that partisanship drove uh, people um, to believe in conspiracy theories about the other side. Right. So essentially what we wound up showing was that you put all that together and, you, and, and you're sort of explaining um, kind of like a map um, how all of these different beliefs fit together. You know what people are going to buy into what groups of conspiracy theories. So in terms of controversy, I don't see anything controversial here for academics. Uh, for for non-academics, the controversy is always there. And I have a, invite you to look at my inbox full of people who you know, say that I'm in on it and um, are, are absolutely convinced that all of this scholarship is some sort of attempt to shut down reasonable debate or or uh, to stop people from questioning authority, which is not our intent in, in, in any way. Um, and, and we're always rather accommodating to people who believe these ideas and we're accommodating to the ideas themselves. We say, hey, we don't know if these are false or not, and that's not the debate we want to get into. But what we can say is that these are conspiracy theories because they haven't been shown to be true by the appropriate bodies of experts. And that's it. So they could be true. Maybe we'll find out that these ideas are true at some time in the future. Um, but for now, they are appropriately called conspiracy theories. I think that we are maybe trying to uh, induce a little bit of tension uh, where maybe there isn't some <laughs> that, that should be present. Uh, so, you know, we already talked about how all of these are not the same and we shouldn't treat them as the same and we should be very careful about which ones we include in a survey and what kind of inferences that permits. So we also show, you know, if you take this cluster of conspiracy beliefs versus all the other clusters and you correlate them with things like support for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or a few other things, those correlations bounce all around the place. 
Sometimes they're positive, sometimes they're negative, sometimes they're, they're totally non-significant. So um, that obviously is gonna have huge implications for the kinds of inferences you make, right? Which conspiracy beliefs you started with in the first place. So, you know, we're trying to almost in introduce a little bit of tension or at least sort of get people to think about this a little bit more seriously. And then, you know, the other thing that's sort of in that vein is getting back to that orthogonality between the left-right dimension uh, that we find and then the other sort of psychological characteristics, which uh, we have a different paper in the uh, American Journal of Political Science that sort of takes this further and, and sort of formalizes it a little bit better. But, you know, an argument that we sort of make there is that we kind of mistake um, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, beliefs uh, that we find disconcerting for sort of uh, for polarization and sort of partisan tension and partisan extremism, and really there's something else. Uh, and that something else is actually not only something else, but something completely uncorrelated with uh, partisanship and ideology. So, you know, we need to sort of think about that a little bit more carefully and not sort of have this very piecemeal approach where not only are people using totally different conspiracy beliefs and talking past one another, but, you know, sometimes you control for partisanship, sometimes you don't, you know, sometimes these other things are in the model, um, you know, there's still maybe not a sense of what is sort of fundamental and what should be there. And that's really sort of hampering um, how we, um, how we uh, sort of determine, you know, what, what the sort of causal antecedents of some of these beliefs are. This kind of like thought of concern with with the, your your statement, not not that the statement was concerning, but in kind of the broader sense that if you know if we're presenting some of these particular theories, especially some of the ones that are more um, you know with on, not on that necessarily political spectrum, but on that more dark triad spectrum as political, that that someone you know from from kind of a social identity standpoint, someone who who you know is within that like highly, I'm highly identified as a Republican, highly identified as a Democrat. And then they're, they're kind of having that portrayed as, well, if you're in this political group, this is what this group believes. It can start to shift potentially those, those views away, which even kind of further, I guess, muddies the water and where, you know, the, the underlying causes of these, you know, some of these beliefs from that spectrum of like, these are predominantly, you know, held by uh, high psychopathy, high narcissistic, high Machiavellianism individuals to moving into that political spectrum, not because of those underlying beliefs, but because of the way it's being portrayed by the media or being portrayed by high profile political individuals. And then kind of a, I guess a negative repercussion to labeling stuff as, as sort of hyper-partisan. And, and equally, um, just just the sort of opposite, right? So we have some beliefs that are uh, that I think Joe and I would basically chalk up as almost like run-of-the-mill political attitudes. Uh, they count as conspiracy theories, but um, in the way that they operate, you know, when you look at, um, you know, like election fraud conspiracy theories right now, I mean, uh, they basically have a lot of the same correlates as, um, as other kinds of political attitudes. So they are not uh, oftentimes primarily driven by some of these other psychological characteristics. They're not uh, necessarily completely absent from the mix, but uh, again, we're kind of talking about something else. So if we, if we start looking at all conspiracy theories and say, well, this is for 
paranoid and psychotic people, well, that's going to be wrong. And it's going to be wrong about some of the most uh, sort of popular conspiracy theories, at least in terms of the things that we're most likely to encounter in sort of, you know, mass media or coming from politicians. I mean, another issue, too, is that people often make this assumption, and a lot of journalists are guilty of this, that oh, they must have been exposed to it on Facebook or Twitter, and now this got them to believe it. And their analysis starts at the second where the person saw something on Facebook or Twitter, so it excludes everything about that person. You know, so once you account for the fact that people are largely predisposed to believe in certain things, um, you know, it makes the exposure look incredibly important, whereas you know, that person probably would have believed it anyway, or was already heavily, so heavily disposed that, you know, there wasn't that much of an effect by, by the exposure. Um, and I think that's a real problem, right? Like I take a lot of calls from journalists and the conversation is something like this, you know, Joe, I saw this new conspiracy theory on Twitter and I'm concerned about it because everyone's going to see it and everyone's going to believe it. And I say, well, did you see it? And they say, yeah. So I say, well, you must believe it then. And they say, no. And I say, what makes you so special and everyone else so stupid? How come you're so sm much smarter than everybody else on the planet and they're, they're a bunch of rubes and you're not? And then they start to realize people don't believe everything that they're exposed to. There's, re you know, we, we adopt information for a whole lot of reasons, but um, just exposure on its own is, is rarely one of them. So, once we account for people's dispositions and personality traits and, and other factors, the effect of a Facebook or a Twitter on people is very, very small, right? So we can say, oh yeah, information travels faster than it ever did before, sure. But that doesn't mean anyone's looking at it. It doesn't mean if they see it that they care. And it most certainly doesn't mean that if they spend any time with it, that they're going to be persuaded in any way. And that even those who look like they were persuaded probably weren't persuaded. They probably already believed it to begin with. So, I mean, this goes back to, you know, something I was taught in, uh, in high school when they, I think it was the war of the world's radio show that was on in the 1930s and, and the coverage of it, seem to suggest, oh my God, there was this radio program on last night and it, they played it off as, as if it was a real thing going on live. And it made it sound like aliens were invading New Jersey or something like that. And the, and the newspaper coverage of this was that the radio had done something wrong by tricking people and you had a mass exodus of millions of people running out of New Jersey to escape the alien invasion because they all believed it was real. This was taught to me as, as if it was true. But you go back and look, and a lot of people weren't listening to that program. And of those who were, most people weren't convinced, and there's no evidence that anyone was trying to escape the alien invasion. All of this was created by newspapers who at the time were upset at radio for stealing the market share and wanted them to be more regulated by the FCC. So apply that to what's going on now with those same newspapers who are upset at Facebook and Twitter and everyone else for destroying their business model. And, and that gives you a new perspective on what they're doing and why they're doing it. 
Mm-hmm. That was going to be my next question is that I feel like, so we talked, we started this session with a historian who was like, conspiracy theories go back forever. Like there's always going to be conspiracy theories, but then it feels like, and particularly when researching for this season, that there were a lot, like there was an explosion of research and conversations in the media and academic journals about this topic. And so is this a folk devil against technology advancement like we see with like radio tv the original internet and now the web 2.0 like are we just hyper focused on it and it's not so much that it's a growing menace in the country or what what is your take on that yeah you know we we uh we don't find any any evidence that uh people are more conspiratorial today than they were um, at least by our count as far back as we can go uh compared to 1966 i guess uh looking at uh comparing jfk beliefs uh to uh, when they were when they were first pulled on back then to today um, we did that sort of study looking at uh, dozens of specific conspiracy beliefs, comparing them to the old original polls going back uh, up to 55 years. And we find that uh, there is mostly stability. And then of those that change, more go down, uh, more find less support than find more support. And of those that find less support, the changes are larger downward uh, than they are upward. Um, we also have sort of tracked the disposition uh, conspiracy thinking uh, over time. We have that back to 2012. That is completely stable. And so when you when you take that, we have we have some uh, sort of cross comparative data too, and some other operationalizations of, of conspiracism. And we we basically just find way more stability and even decreases over time than we find increases. So combine that with what we know about history and um, you know, again, if we went back 100 years, there's lower education levels, there's lower literacy rates. If we went to the 1800s, we've got the era of the partisan press, where people's, you know, the information they were getting was explicitly and exclusively partisan, right? And, and almost just, you know, for entertainment purposes. Uh, you know, I mean, that was a way worse misinformation environment uh, than, than we have today. So, if we combine that sort of history, if we combine the data I just described, and then if we start thinking about how uh, these various uh, these various predispositions and motivations that underlie conspiracy beliefs, taking that sort of public opinion perspective, all of those things are stable too, right? Uh, these are things that tend to form earlier in life, but they're the types of ingredients that everybody has, right? They're not um, right like being partisan or being ideological having a certain personality is not a new thing to the last 10 years or something like that. So, you know, our, I guess our take is that people are just more interested in this. Uh, it is certainly something that captivates people. And um, it's hard to sort of put a number on that. But, you know, look at, uh, turn on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel. And you see, you know, everything is ancient aliens and river monsters and finding Bigfoot and whatever. I'm pretty sure that the History Channel isn't playing those things instead of the airplanes of World War II because they are losing viewership, right? Uh, people are just sort of captivated by this stuff. It's interesting to them. Um, you know, the, the term conspiracy theory has sort of 
sort of become integrated into the American political vernacular in a way that it wasn't um, not all that long ago. And so there's this, you know, tougher to nail down kind of cultural component to this, I think, that is driving the interest, but not really the belief, right? Not really changing how conspiratorial we are as a society. I mean, if you go, let's go back to when Alex Jones was at his peak say five or six years ago before he started getting banned everywhere. Um, his website in terms of web traffic in the US was ranked around 350 something. And that's a massive drop off um, when you compare that to where the New York Times was usually in the top 20 or something like that. And if you look at web traffic online um, people are going to the internet to do all sorts of things, you know, to book travel, get dates, look at porn long before they're going to get their conspiracy theories. So it's not the case that everyone's racing to the internet or to whatever social media platform today to get their conspiracy theories. That's not happening, right? There are, of course, people who do that, but it's the same number of people who are believing these things a long time ago. So when people say, oh, my God, things are so much worse now than they were in the past. Well, that's rosy hindsight. And just think about it for a minute. Are things worse now than they were during the Red Scare? Are they worse now than they were when we were drowning and crushing witches? <laughs> I mean, is it really worse than that? I don't think so. So instead of looking at the internet as something that just incubates conspiracy theories, we have to understand that we have the world's library in our pocket available to us 24 seven and people are smarter and better off because of it. And you have to understand too, that just because ideas can spread doesn't mean that they necessarily do go tweet something today. I'm going to tweet a handful of things. I'll probably get a like on each one. Go tweet a conspiracy theory, see how far it gets. I mean, your media and conspiracy theory on any social media platform dies on the vine and no one cares about, right? It's If it was the case that everything, every conspiracy theory we put online was able to captivate everybody, we'd all be believing in every conspiracy theory by now, but we're not. And we're not any worse off on this score than we were 10 or 20 years ago. A really good analog to this is that we we've been doing some research on um i don't know call them believers necessarily but ufo enthusiasts because with the broad spectrum of interest and in media on ufos and space going back to war of the worlds uh, we see this drastic difference in the people who are interested in just wanting to know what these things that the navy is reporting and what these these unidentified aerial phenomenon are in the sky versus the cluster of them who are able to come together and it makes it seem that there are more of them than there ever were who are like these hardcore alien believers and these hardcore conspiracy theorists regarding like secret plots and government conspiring with alien um, uh, groups. And when you even go back in the literature, the big difference that's being talked about is just that it's more salient. So if you ask people like, do you think they're extraterrestrials? They're like, well, possibly. I mean, you know, Stephen Hawking and Neil deGrasse Tyson are talking about probability of life out, outside of our planet is high just in terms of sheer numbers. It's probable. Now, are they coming to our planet and abducting people and probing it? Probably not. <laughs> but there's 
there's always been that kind of subset of individuals who have kind of like gone down that particular rabbit hole versus the broader spectrum of people who are, I mean, we look at the History Channel, are just interested in it, are interested in that possibility, are interested in the entertainment value uh, of it, but they're not out there believing that there are extraterrestrials like among us um, and, and whatnot. Um, and so that kind of gets to that, that, you know, it's like, I guess, perfect correlation, you know, for undergraduate listeners, correlation does not equal causation, that just because you see it more often, just because the media is reporting it more often, doesn't mean that it's happening more often. Yeah, and a lot of this was elite driven. I mean, this was some people in Congress working with some, some other people in government to have some committee and put out some report, and a bunch of high, you know, journalists in top publications like the Times and the Post, who are doing a lot of alien stories for the last few years. Um, so it gave a lot of salience to this. What was the quality of the evidence? It was crap. And, and shame on those media outlets and those government officials for giving oxygen to this. Because every single one of those videos that came out was easily explained as, as something other than an alien. Which is sort of funny because you, you take all those videos that were getting put out and there's like 20 of them that I've seen floating around recently. Every single one is like a different shape floating around. You have a triangle one, a circle one, a dot one, one flies close to the ocean, one does circles and this and that. It's like, oh, the aliens brought, you know, an entire fleet in which every spaceship is entirely different than the other one. <laughs> So they brought the camper and the Winnebago and they brought the, the sedan and, and whatever. So it, 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 none of it makes sense on its own. And I think that the media did everyone a serious, serious disservice by putting all this hoopla out there. And then when the report came out, all of a sudden the story disappeared. It died with a whimper and without any resolution for the people who were following it to say, no, there's no evidence this was aliens. At the same time, all the alien business was going on, a bunch of other people, including my senator down here in Florida, Marco Rubio, was like, this might not be aliens, but it, it could represent a serious uh, military threat. And it's like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> so we got to increase the budget. Yeah, we got to increase <laughs> the budget. So it, it, it was nonsense um, from the top down. Mm hmm. And if you look at most of the communities that are really delving into this, they're they're having those same like highly skeptical conversations, like at least the ones that are not kind of buying into, you know, all of that. Um, but they're they're having a lot of those. And again, it's not from the bottom up. There's a lot of like, wait a second, like this could be a drone. We're not talking aliens here. They get really upset if you want to talk about aliens because they're like, no, we're, we're talking about the evidence. We're talking about what we do know. And we don't know that. We can't know that. Um, and, and it's a that huge disconnect between where a lot of those reports were coming from. There's, there's uh, an analog um, to this sort of intrigue and top-down effect when it comes to QAnon as well. So Pew Research Center did a great uh, study, um, I, I believe in March of 2020. And then they repeated it, uh, at least some of the questions again in September of 2020. And one of the things they asked was, 
Um, have you ever heard of the QAnon or ever heard of QAnon or what, I can't remember exactly what the question was, but something along those lines. And then um, if people had, they asked, well, where did you hear, from, hear about it? Well, in March of 2020, not very many people had heard of QAnon. Uh, by September though, a ton of people had. So what happened? Well, the coverage exploded because Marjorie Taylor Greene won her primary. And then there was all of a sudden this interest in, uh, you know, this, this large group of QAnon candidates running for Congress. All of a sudden reporters start paying attention to QAnon gatherings, which had been happening previous to that. And so Joe and I have data uh, where we ask people how sort of favorable they are toward the QAnon movement. And what we find is that while uh, the percentage of people claiming to have heard of QAnon skyrocketed just between March and September of last year, the proportion of people who feel favorably in any way toward the QAnon movement actually went down a little bit. And and in the and in the Pew Research Center poll, when they asked where did where did you hear about QAnon, the uh, modal response was the New York Times. So uh, you know, again, there's the intrigue is there, the interest. Like, look at all of these other people that are uh, politically uh, political others, right? I guess we could we could call them, and the crazy stuff that they believe in. But the reality is the numbers weren't really moving in terms of who actually believed these things. Uh, if anything, you know, maybe maybe going down and losing some steam. Um, it's just, you know, people are learning about it more. They're interested in it. It's keeping eyes glued to web pages um, and maybe not a lot more than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um... I guess uh, yeah. I guess um, do we have any 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 final thoughts, final questions, Thomas? As we're reaching an hour, I think we've we have covered the depth. So, yeah. I, thank you both. I mean, I could I I could easily continue. <laughs> it's so fascinating, and I have a student who's really interested in kind of that cross between political science and psychology, and he's dragging me, you know, down down a lot of. Uh, what you guys are doing and, and what uh, similar research within that vein, within trying to kind of uh, approach some of these concepts from from a much more political science oriented versus like the way we we tend to look at things a lot in, in psychology that, that much more narrow uh, focus. So, yeah. Um, you, in other words, you're going down appropriate route. Yeah, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess with that, thank you, um, you know, again, so much for joining us um, and, and having this conversation uh, with us today and, and sharing your research and, and perspectives on the topic. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Yeah. So I guess to con conclude um, with with our our interview with with Dr. Sosinski, Sosinski, I'm thinking of um, paramanagement theory. Yuzinski, uh, Dr. Yuzinski and Enders, um, we're, uh, we're kind of going to do a little post recording to kind of throw in our, our bias of the week. You know, to, to, I guess make this a slightly less serious podcast mm -hmm. with, uh, with two well-noted researchers. Um, so our bias of the week uh, this week, um, just because I'm thinking about conspiracy theories, is conjunction fallacy. Ooh. A Seversky and Kahneman. Ah! 
uh, bringing them back 1983 um, from their paper uh, existential versus intuitive reasoning the conjunction fallacy which is the tendency to assume that specific conditions are more probable than general ones mm. and that, that seems, seems to be a common theme of what we were talking about with uh, with with Dr. Yusinski and Dr. Enders is that this idea that that some of these conspiracies, these very specific conspiracy theories are more prominent than some more general ones or just some more general ideas is is pretty common. Mm-hmm. Like we tend to tend to fall fall in and pray, um, you know, fall prey to this, mm-hmm. especially with a lot of media exposure. That was make- something about this interview that I really appreciated was that um, because after doing the Google Scholar search to see what's been going on and realizing that the field is very, very big and moving very, very quickly and has been for a while. I, w- I wondered if this was like just cultural imagination being triggered about conspiracy theories or if conspiracy theories were actually on the rise. And I'm feeling much better that they are not in fact on the rise. They're just getting more coverage. Yeah, this is also supported by, um, I mentioned at the end, my, my student who's doing some political science research um, or kind of political science psychology bridging that gap. And one of the things that we found when when trying to delve into whether or not there really was this kind of distaste for certain um, speakers at universities, most students don't care. Mm-hmm. The media exploded. There were a couple of very specific hot button cases. I mean, you get some really controversial people um, at very motivated. You, you get them to UC Berkeley, and right. um, yeah, there's going to be some um, some fight there. But when we ask students like, "Hey, what do you think of this person?" They're like, "I've never heard of them." Like, really? This person's huge within like the political commentary sphere. Student hasn't heard of them, mm-hmm. or and. But when you ask them about the really extreme people, so like really extreme, like cause political violence level people, it doesn't matter if they're on the right or the left. The students have a very negative perception of them. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you're on the right, you're not a fan of the really extreme people on the right. And if you're on the left, you're not a fan of the really extreme people on the left <laughs> because they're extreme. Um, it, it's And it's not like a, like a horseshoe. So you would mm-hmm. say... Like there's just there's a level of extremism. I mean, m- much like what what Dr. Anders talked about, there's this level of political spectrum, and then there's also a spectrum for dark triad traits. Right. And some people score differently on one versus the other. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> um, no, it reminds me, like, and this is kind of something that maybe we should probably talk about eventually is kind of this, um, there's a researcher, uh, I believe Catherine Liu, who speaks on the uh, professional managerial class and how like journalists and academics and managers and HR departments and like people who have time to be terminally online are very much like this is all like we know who Ben Shapiro is even though our students won't kind of thing um and so there may be a link there between this like spectacle of conspiracy and like a positionality within society so like when they were talking about the journalists who were freaking out about stuff on Twitter journalists make their money and build their personas and are heavily 
uh, using Twitter. And even though Twitter doesn't account for a significant portion of the population at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I see some of that with like fan research and some of the stuff that I'm interested in. Like I'm, I'm in, I'm down those rabbit holes because that's some of the stuff that I'm researching, mm -hmm. but I go and talk to someone else and they're like, wait, who are these people? Like, wait, there are people who are fans of that mm -hmm. because they're not exposed to it. Even though there are millions of people who would call themselves members of these groups, that's still, I mean, that's a drop in the bucket when we're comparing the billions of people on the planet. Right. <laughs> so that, that may be also something we could explore later is just kind of like, where is the spectacle coming from? And like, what is yeah. this actual relationship between online and in person? Because um, I don't think it's as uh, uh, powerful or impactful or effectful as uh, we think it is as we are terminally online. Yeah. It is a pod but... after all. <laughs> yep. So yeah, I guess with that, again, we'll we'll kind of end with this, this bias of the week and um... Say goodbye. All righty. Talk to y'all later.